Thank you very much. Sorry about the delay. So, well, I've, I, I have this project at Bristol, which is uh, in the PI, the Foundations of Structuralism Research Project. Um, there's obviously overlap between Anna's project, which is also about structuralism, and Anna invited me to speak here, and so I thought it would be appropriate to tell you a bit about our project and some of the results that we've come up with so far. The project isn't over for an, another year yet, so we have a little bit longer to answer the perennial philosophical questions that we said we would in the application. So I, I haven't done anything to make explicit the connections with the interests of people in power structuralism, and I just hope that they'll be obvious to you. I'm just going to tell you about the work that we've been doing. And most of what I'll talk about will be about discernibility uh, and PII, but um, this, is, this is the project as a whole. We're interested in structuralism and how to characterise it and its foundations. So, in terms of how to characterise it, sometimes people say that structuralism is the view that objects lack certain kinds of properties, that they lack maybe intrinsic properties, they lack non-relational properties, they lack uh, non-structural properties. Sometimes it's put in terms of dependence. So, structuralists express their view as the claim that objects about which they're being structuralists depend on each other for their existence perhaps or sometimes depend on each other for their identity or for their individuation and it's not clear at all what's meant by depend here it's something analogous notions are often used as well the in virtue of relation the determination relation I hope I'll be able to shed some light on dependence um, via a formal sort of correlate of it. And I'll come back to that. And when we talk about conceptual foundations of structuralism, we're interested in questions that I think are of general interest in philosophical logic, such as what are criteria of identity? What kinds of conditions should we expect them to satisfy? Uh, should we require criteria of identity be predicative? Should we require some form of PII? What exactly is individuation? Do we need a substantive account of it? How should the various metaphysical notions of dependence be analysed? What roles will the notion of individuation and criteria of identity play in that analysis? And this very interesting question about the relations among different notions that we get, uh, entity, object, individual, substance and so on, and how we should think about that in the light of structuralism. And then more questions. Okay, are there differences between abstract and concrete structures? Uh, how does structuralism relate to ontological holism? How does it relate to the issues about fundamental level? Uh, human supervenience. Okay, so that's just to tell you about the overall task we set ourselves to investigate these que these questions. However, I will say not very much about most of them. So this is what I said I would say. Um, this is the abstract I sent over, which had some typos. I'm sorry about that. The structuralism is often construed as a claim about the dependency of individuation on on relations. And that the, what, what the approach we took is to model the notion of ontological dependence by the notion of derivability in a, in a language. So the thought is that whilst the notion of ontological dependence might be uh, not terribly transparent to you, we all know about derivability in formal language, and so we can make that do surrogate for the notion of dependence. So that will become clear what I mean by that a bit later. Now, formal languages can have different resources, of course. They may or may not include names, they may or not include identity. And um, 
the formal correlate of the metaphysical content of PII can be construed as the reduction of identity uh, in, in a language without identity to predication involving qualitative properties and relations. It has recently been argued that so-called weak discernibility is sufficient for such a reduction. Uh, we showed that that's the weakest non-trivial form of discernibility, and it remains to be established what the philosophical upshots of recent results upshot of recent results about discernibility is and that's what I want to say something about. So I'll tell you a little bit about these uh, our investigations into discernibility and then sort of say a little bit about what I think the philosophical implications are. So um, that issue, I mean what what how should we taxonomize um, things are which are entities, which are objects, which are individuals? A standard view is that whilst objects are just the values of any first order variables, or objects are just anything we quantify over, individuality requires something more, that individuals are something over and above objects, or that not all objects are individuals. Okay, that'd be the claim. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that lots of people assume that there's something more to individuals than them merely being objects. So, French and Redhead, um, back in a paper, uh, a classic paper on identity indiscernibles in the context of quantum mechanics, say that individuals have to persist in time. Other authors say that they have to obey, have to uh, have transworld identity. Has to make transworld identity has to make sense for them. That's contentious. Lots of people would deny that, but that's something that people sometimes say that's required over and above. And of course, you could require more than one of these. Right? These are just some of the things that are, are, are sometimes said to be required. Um, some people say, well, objects needn't obey the laws of identity, perhaps including PII. Maybe, maybe the laws of identity only apply to individuals, not to objects. So, of course, uh, well, for those who know the area, Stephen French and Dessio Krauss have a theory of non-individual objects. They think that laws of identity don't apply to the non-individuals. And then most recently, uh, Fred Muller, Simon Saunders of, of uh, this parish, and... Uh, uh, Jeremy Butterfield um, and Adam Colton uh, have used, have insisted that, that individuals satisfy what's called absolute discernibility, and I will tell you exactly what that is in a minute. So that's just an issue to keep at the back of your minds, um, not one about which I'm uh, going to ha uh, state a definite view. Uh, um, structuralism has often been objected to on the grounds that it requires the identity of indiscernibles, but that uh, there are objects in the relevant domains that violate the identity of indiscernibles, and therefore structuralist account is not appropriate for them. So, for example, there are mathematical objects that violate the identity of indiscernibles. Uh, the well-known example is that of I and minus I. Well, violate the identity of indiscernibles as standardly formulated, and we'll come back to this. Uh, so... Should a structuralist be committed to PII? Well, as well as I and minus I sharing all structural properties uh, and yet being distinct, it seems that some quantum particles can share all their physical properties and yet be distinct. Hence the received view that these quantum particles are not individuals, assuming, assuming that they must satisfy PII to be individuals, which is uh, contestable. But in order to, I think, really properly address whether structuralism requires PII, we have to dig a little deeper into, into PII. What, what exactly is PII? 
Well, uh, if we formulate it like this, as um, in, in second order logic, we say for any x, for any y, for any property, if, um, I mean, the, 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 the contentious bit is that if they share all properties, then they're the same individual. Okay. However, that's a theorem of second order logic with full comprehension. So it's, um, it's sort of trivially true, right? In particular, we just have to think about the property of being identical to the object X, and then that object has it, any other object, that it, oh, sorry, being the object A, that object has it, any other object that isn't A doesn't have it, so they differ uh, in a property. So uh, it will always be the case that uh, things that are distinct will differ in the property which is the sort of contrapositive way of thinking about PII, right? There are, PII contrapositively says there, are, there aren't any two things that have all the same properties. So it's really just interesting to, it's only interesting to debate PII if we restrict the, the range of the quantification, that's the point. So stronger forms of PII means that there are more kinds of properties in the range. So Leibniz seemed to have believed, sorry, that should be the other way around. Stronger forms of PII have fewer forms of properties, okay? That's wrong. So Leibniz seems to have believed a very strong form of PII because it was very restrictive about what kinds of properties. It was, it was, it's supposed to be true even if we restrict ourselves to intrinsic properties. Okay. So um, you know, no two individuals can have all the same intrinsic qualitative properties, it seems. Now, suppose that that form of, so call that PII little i, right, just an intrinsic PII. Suppose that's false. Well, of course, it may still be, PII may still be true if we expand what properties we're allowed to consider. So you may have things that are intrinsically uh, indiscernible, but not indiscernible when we're allowed to include their relations to other things. Okay. Now, um, to avoid triviality, we say that we must restrict PII to qualitative properties, but I haven't yet said what that means. And it's often said that what that means is, well, properties that are not identity-involving. And so one of the um, points that I'll make later, uh, I'll argue for later, is that there's an um, ambigu ambiguity in the notion of identity-involving, that we can cash it out in two different ways and we get um, quite different um, results depending on wh which, which kind of identity involving we allow. Okay, so in, in particular it's ambiguous between involving the identity relation and involving the identity of a particular object. What I have in mind is, um, you know, I could come back to it, but you, you, you can see how a property could implicitly evolve, involve the identity relation. So you might think, so if you want to define the property of being an uncle, which looks like it's just a straightforward, you know, it's a monadic property, logically, right? But it's, that, of course, this is another important point. We shouldn't let the logical, f the fact that we can express a, a property with a monadic predicate confuse us about the metaphysical nature of that property. Being an uncle is not metaphysically intrinsic, right? I'm an uncle, but that's in virtue of my relations to other things. It's not an intrinsic property of me, even though I use a monadic, property to, monadic predicate to express my uncleness. 
And if we cash out what being an uncle means, we use the identity relation. Because being an uncle is for there to be somebody who has the same parents as you, who isn't identical with you, who has a child. Well, then you have to be a man. So um, when you cash out what that property is really about, you find the identity relation in there. That's the thought. So that's not transparently identity involving, but is actually identity involving. But that's identity involving in the sense of involving the identity relation. It's not identity involving in the sense of involving the identity of a particular thing. So um, why be interested in PII for qualitative properties? Um, well, you could just be interested in it because it's important in the history of philosophy. And actually, I think um, we should always keep uh, alive uh, the study of the history of philosophy for its own, own sake. Um, uh, that helps philosophy as a subject uh, avoid sort of the parochialism that comes from only looking at philosophy from the, way, from the particular way we, we set up the problems now, I think. Um, but but more, um, more importantly, perhaps, I think that empiricists have traditionally wanted PII to be true because they have this thought that identity facts shouldn't be anything mysterious that isn't empirically accessible. And qualitative relations are empirically accessible. And so if we can show that identity is nothing more than what's true in virtue of what, quali what qualities there are, then we've shown that We've shown that identity is sort of empirically respectable. Um, and then there are debates about PII in maths and science, especially physics. And then in metaphysics generally, we just worry about, well, what is it for a thing to, um, to be the thing that it is? What's the principle of individuation for things or things of some particular kind? So classically we say, um, to answer the a principle of individuation is an answer to the question, in virtue of what is a thing the thing it is and not any other thing? And there's a deflationary version of that question, um, of, of questions about uh, relationship between individuation and other properties, um, which is to say, well, look, there clearly are facts about the identity and diversity of individual objects in domains. And we can reasonably ask the question, are those facts primitive? Or are they reducible or supervenient, reducible to or supervenient on qualitative properties and relations? And if you hold the bundle theory of individuation, then you think that uh, to be a particular thing is nothing more than to ha for there to be a bundle of properties. And then it's usually thought that that means PII must hold. Right, that if you believe the bundle theory of individuation, then you must believe PII. Uh, PII true when the scope of the quantifier is restricted to qualitative properties. Okay, obviously, otherwise it'd be trivial. And then um, the good thing about the bundle theory of individuation uh, is that we won't need any of this kind of stuff, um, which empiricists have uh, tend not to like. Um, but but of course. I mean, you see by the size of the list that there are lots of philosophers who, who like principles of individuation other than just the bundle of properties, qualitative properties that things have. Uh, you know, exactly what are the differences between all these things uh, is a subject that will make your hair curl, I guess. Um, though some people um, get, get very into that. I mean, 
exactly what's a hexity that's different to primitive distance. I'm entirely sure. I think uh, there's contention about about what the notion of hexatas originally meant among the scholastics. But all of these have in common that they're what's called transcendent individual uh, principles of uh, principles of individuation. Right? That is transcending the qualitative properties and relations of the things in question. Now, all of these seem to be intrinsic properties of things. So if something has a hexatas, it has it intrinsically. If it has primitive thisness, it has it intrinsically. Uh, if there's bare particularity, that's intrinsic to every bare particular, and so on. And there's an interesting question then about whether this kind of transcendental individuation implies hexatism. Or does hexity imply hexatism? Where hexatism is the claim that worlds can differ uh, solo numero, that worlds can differ de re, uh, whilst uh, not differing de dicto, it's sometimes said, uh, that worlds can differ solely by the permutation of individuals. Now, hexatism is important in this context because, I mean, just to say, going way back, I mean, Kaplan in his famous paper, How to Russell a Frege Church, does immediately make the inference from failure of PII to hexatism. But you could contest that. Um, but in recent debates about physical objects in physics, it's actually hexatism that's often an issue because you're often thinking about permuting uh, in individuals and that only makes sense if you, you imagine a different world with the same arrangement of qualities but where the individuals are permuted among those qualities. So it's perhaps you might say from a, natu a naturalist will probably think that hexatism is bad because it doesn't sit well with a, natural, a, a good interpretation of contemporary physics which wants to deny, which, which ought to deny hexatism because of the way that physicists seem to use their theories. They seem to think that worlds that differ solely by the permutation of individuals aren't, so for example, space-time points, aren't really distinct possible worlds, not physically distinct worlds. Okay, now I've argued that you could have a form of primitive identity that doesn't imply hexatism, but I won't go, I'll come back to that maybe. And I mean, if you wanted to fix your intuitions about that, um, that, that doesn't make any sense to you, but just think of Max Black's two spheres, right, and then ask yourself how many worlds are obtainable from the world with Max Black's two spheres? Is there only one, or are there two different ones, depending on which of Max Black's two spheres you delete to get the new world? Um, Okay, so if you thought that identity was primitive and intrinsic, then you might well think, well, there must be two worlds that I could get by deleting one of Max Black's two spheres, right? Because it's really property of Castor that Castor is Castor, and that's what makes Castor distinct from Pollux. So when I delete Pollux, that's a different world to the world in which there isn't Castor. You may also want to deny that. Okay, and then it's also often argued that quantum particles are not individuals because if they were, they would violate PII. And then the reasoning usually assumes that um, transcendent individuation is, is unacceptable. And therefore, we assume that quantum particles are not individuals. So that's why we should care. So this is the question that I'm interested in then. Given some collection of individuals in a particular domain, there are facts about both identity and diversity. There are facts about indiscernibility and discernibility. How do they relate? And of course... PII at least must be true uh, in actuality for us to have supervenience of the one on the other. Right? They better be 
I mean, it better coincide in extension if one's to supervene on the other, at least, of course. So, um, this notion of grounding, ontological dependence, in virtue of determination, supervenience, these notions are all maybe different. Um, that none of them are that transparent. Um, probably got a better grip on what I think supervenience is than I have on what determination is. The in virtue of relation, you know, philosophers talk about it all the time. You know, I mean, what in virtue of what is such and such, right? But well, what does that really mean? Is that the same thing as determination? How does that relate to grounding? You know, is the in virtue of relation the same as a grounding relation? Okay, I really don't know. But the thought is we could get some purchase on the question by focusing instead on a notion that we can do something with, the notion of derivability um, or defi definability of facts about identity and diversity from other facts. So letting derivability be surrogate for... Um, for dependence. So in a forthcoming paper um, in Review of Symbolic Logic, Oyston Linebo, Richard Pettigrew and I argue that we can kind of, we use this term factorising of philosophical questions in this context into a philosophical component which concerns the adequacy of a particular language and then a formal component which concerns whether or not you can discern in that language. And then the thought is, if you can discern in the language and the language is inadequate, it language is adequate, then that tells you something about the metaphysical question you started with. And we have some results that we think are surprising and philosophically interesting, so that's what I'm going to talk about. So, I mean, for some of you, this would be completely old hat, but I mean, hands up, who is absolutely bored sick of the notion of, of the distinction between different kinds of discernibility? So some of, uh, Oliver is, but apart from Oliver... So some of you, okay, so maybe you don't know about this too well. Okay, so Simon Saunders have um, uh, reintroduced this distinction. And the idea was to, to solve, you know, where you had um, individuals or putative individuals which violated PII, the thought was to say, oh, right, but there's another version of PII which is weaker, which they will satisfy. And this is not to um, that modify PII by modifying the kinds of properties that are in the scope, but actually to change what's meant by PII. And I'll explain that in a minute. So, first of all, this is the familiar notion that we, that we usually operate with, right? That, that discernibility, mean, absolute discernibility now, to distinguish it from these other forms that we're going to come on to, is when there's a formula free in one variable that's satisfied by one object and not the other. Now that may mean that there's actually just a property, an intrinsic property that one has and the other doesn't. But it needn't mean that. Right? It could be that you can construct a description of the object that's free in one variable that involves its relations to other things. And that description is then a formula. And the object satisfies that and no other object satisfies it. Or particularly two objects, one satisfies it, the other doesn't. So this is more permissive than intrinsic discernibility. Okay, I'll come back to that in a minute. I mean, of course, if you insisted that the only way you get a formula free in one variable is if there's a, a predicate that names an intrinsic property, then they will collapse into the same thing. But that needn't in general be true. So everyday material objects seem to be 
uh, absolutely discernible, I mean intrinsically discernible. Natural numbers are absolutely discernible by the successor relation. Um, classical particles in a sufficiently asymmetric universe are absolutely discernible because of the principle of impenetrability. They have to have different spatiotemporal trajectories and those, when we're allowed relations here, then that will be enough to, dis to discern them. So they won't be intrinsically discernible, because take any two classical particles, they're exactly the same in terms of their intrinsic natures, but once you're allowed to talk about the relations they bear to other things, then they are discernible because they have different trajectories. Okay, now, uh, so that's absolute discernibility, and if you had a kind of loose notion of property, Right, where if you have a form, formula free in one variable, then you're allowed a property, to the, the, the monadic property that you can think that you know you just go from formulas free in one variable to monadic properties. Then think about it this way. Okay, and then relative discernibility. We won't worry about too much about that, but this is where the the formula there's a formula free in two variables satisfied by the objects in one order only. So instance of time, if time has an intrinsic direction, you might think intrinsically every instant of time is the same as every other, but they're all discern relatively discernible one from another by the fact that they stand in the earlier than relation one way round only. Yeah? I'll just ask you a clarification question. When you talk about discernibility here, the kinds of properties that things can, can stand share, are you still allowing identity involved in properties? Is that discernibility? Or are you restricting your attention to things like qualitative properties? Um, at the moment, I'm leaving it open, and we'll come back to that, because it's going to matter what counts as absolutely discernible. It's going to depend on which you mean by identity involving properties. I'll, I'll come back to that. I hope that will become clear. Okay, so that's relatively discernible, okay? So RAB, but not RBA. It's straightforward. But weak discernibility is the one we really care about. Um, this is where there's an irreflexive formula, free in two variables, satisfied, satisfied by the two objects um, together. So, Max Bach's um, two spheres, they stand in the irreflexive formula two miles from, or one mile from. Okay, Castor is one mile from Pollux, but Castor is not one mile from Castor. It's very important, actually, though, is people still say in the literature that this has to be an irreflexive, that there has to be an irreflexive relation, but that's not correct. The relation that discerns does not have to be irreflexive quay relation. It just has to be that there's a formula which, when you put the things in, works um, for A and B, but not for A and A. Okay. That doesn't require that relation itself is ir irreflexive. Um, so I noticed there's a recent paper in Philosophical Studies on this topic, which says that weak discernibility requires an irreflexive relation. It's not correct. Okay. So that's weakly discernible. There's a relation R... AB, um, such that RAB are not RAA. And you can see, I mean, if things are weakly discernible, then they're distinct by Leibniz's law, by the converse of PII. Right. If they're weakly discernible, they can't be identical, because they don't satisfy all and exactly the same formulas. Okay, so... Let's leave for now the question as to whether weak discernibility in particular is correctly called discernibility. I mean, I think actually it's not, 
probably not correctly called discernibility. Um, but um, what, I'm, what I want to tell you about is our investigations into different notions of discernibility and how uh, discerning they are. And we can clearly say that one discernibility relation is more discerning than another, just in case with one relation you can discern things that you can't discern with the other. So it's a bit like the palate of a gourmand being more discerning than the palate of another one, right? They can distinguish tastes that the other one can't distinguish. So this is the hierarchy. Um, distinctness is strictly more discerning than weak discernibility. Well, I mean, unless you assume that PII is sort of, I mean, but at least in principle, I mean, sort of logically speaking, I mean, if, if PII holds, then uh, there won't be any things that are distinct that aren't at least weak discernible. Yeah, Oliver, sorry. Sorry, yeah, it's not clarification, so you don't want interruptions. No, probably I did start late, so yeah, that's, um, I actually don't want objections afterwards either. I just, <laughs> uh, so, um, Weak discernibility is strictly more discerning than relative discernibility, so, uh, okay, I mean, I hope it's just fairly obvious that these come in a hierarchy, I'm, I'm not going to go through because I'm going to run out of time, if you, if, you're not, if you want convincing of this hierarchy, then ask me at the end. Um, I think it should be clear that there, there's a hierarchy there. Now, it's really easy to get confused um, when you start... Uh, the scope doesn't work when you start putting negation in, right? So you say, it's very easy to find yourself saying, not absolutely discernible, right? But that's not the same thing as, uh, as absolutely not discernible, right? So what we should, you should really only ever say, uh, not absolutely discernible. Uh, you shouldn't ever say absolutely indiscernible, because that, gets confusing, but what, what, you should, what, you, what you mean by absolutely indiscernible is utterly indiscernible. And that's our term of art for things that aren't even weakly discernible. Okay. So things can be utterly indiscernible, and they're just merely numerically distinct, but not even weakly discernible. Then they could be weakly discernible, but not relatively discernible. They could be relatively discernible, but not absolutely discernible. They could be absolutely discernible, but not intrinsically discernible. Okay, so that's the hierarchy. So what's the relation between... Now, it turns out that, that these questions about discernibility have been investigated in model theory, and uh, we're interested in the relationship between the questions as they appear in philosophy and the questions they appear in model theory. We say that model theory will give us a, uh, a way of giving precise mathematical content to the questions, and the link between the philosophical questions and the formal questions comes via uh, a notion of a language being adequate. And adequate has two parts to it, and adequate here means not what's usually meant by adequate in um, you know, normal terms. Uh, it, what we mean by adequate here is just right. Okay, It's like Goldilocks temperature, right? Um, so we'll say that a language is unsound if there are predicates in the language for which there aren't correlates in reality, right? So, of course, I could have a language into which I introduced hexates, right? But if I thought on philosophical grounds that there weren't any hexates, then that language would have surplus structure, as it were, right? It would have resources that were, were illegitimate, right? On the, the other way around, of course, a language could fail to ex have 
uh, hexates in it, but there could be hexates in reality, and then the language would be inadequate the other way around. Okay? So call a language sound uh, if everything in the language corresponds to something in reality, and call it complete if everything in reality has a correlate in the language. And of course those two things are in tension with each other, you, you know, but if you've got both, obviously if you add more resources you're going to guarantee to make it complete, but you may make it unsound. If you don't have enough resources it will be sound, but it won't be complete. If you have exactly the right amount it will be sound and complete, call that adequate. Okay. Um, and this is exactly the kind of issue that comes up. So, for example, when people are debating um, quantum particles and their individuality and so on, you know, it's, you can look at the formalism and say, well, I've got labels on states. You know, it says particle one, right? But the implicit um, thought in the literature is, yeah, but that part of the language is not expressive. You know, that, that, that we haven't shown that that is sound, right? Maybe those labels shouldn't be there, okay? Because they're expressing kind of more than, than ought to be expressed. Um, and likewise, um, some people have objected to sort of moves um, by saying, oh, well, you can't use a purely mathematical predicates to discern. You must have predicates that somehow have a physical interpretation. Okay, so these can be thought of as objections that the language in question is not sound. Um, so here's just a really obvious example, right? Consider a language without identity with a single non-logical predicate. Let M be the model whose domain consists of Gödel and Tarski. Uh, the relation is interpreted as relating each of these logicians both to himself and to the other. In that model, Gödel and Tarski are indiscernible. Of course, they're discernible in reality, so this language is expressively inadequate. On the other hand, physicalists might argue that physical language has to be expressively adequate, that if two objects are indiscernible in all physical respects, then they are indiscernible simpliciter. So now we're seeing how we can kind of take a familiar metaphysical claim about something like the completeness of physics and get a correlate of it in terms of derivability in different languages of different strengths. So factorize the philosophical question into the philosophical component about the adequacy of the formal language and then the mathematical component is about the discernibility in the formal language. So here's just a repeat of these um, definitions I've already given you. You know, just one last chance to kind of absorb the terminology. I know it's actually really obvious and kind of trivial, I suppose, but sometimes things aren't completely... I have to see it slightly more than once very quickly. Okay, so I hope that's all clear. And then, um, here's those definitions of discernibility again, just one last time. Okay, so absolutely discernible, there's a formula that one satisfies, the other doesn't. Relatively discernible, well forget about that one, we only care about weakly discernible. A and B satisfy the formula, but A and A don't. So, now we can see how we can go from the stuff about the formal language to the stuff about reality. If the language is expressively sound, and A and B are discernible in the language, then they're discernible simpliciter. On the other hand, if the language is expressively complete, and A and B are indiscernible in the language, then they're indiscernible simpliciter. Okay? 
So now we're interested in, in three kinds of language. Um, first of all, consider a language without any constants and without the identity relation, call that L. Now we'll consider discernibility in L. We'll consider discernibility in L plus the identity relation. And we'll consider discernibility in L where we add in constants for every um, object. That's like adding names for every object. Now, I mean, of course, if you remember, um, you can see all of this prefigured in the Max Black paper, right? Where Max Black says, um, you know, there's a dialogue, right? And one guy says, oh, no, but look, Castor's two miles from Pollux, and Pollux isn't two miles from Pollux, so they're discernible. Right, and the other one says, no, no, you're illegitimately using singular reference to one of the, one of the globes, right? So um, that's like saying you're not entitled to the resources of LM, right? You're not allowed, entitled to help yourself to a constant for the objects. Now, of course, we could consider hybrid languages where we have some constants but not all the constants, right? And then we get very complicated. We're not going to talk about that. So we just consider all or nothing. Either we have constants for everything or for nothing. Now, I promised you the defense of the claim that ambiguity was in identity involving, but I only told you about one kind of identity involving, and that was involving the identity relation. So the other kind was involving the identity of a particular object, and here's a proof that these diso doubly dissociate. Okay? So the idea is that the property of being Mercury involves both the individual object, Mercury, the identity of that thing, and it also involves the identity relation, because the property amounts to being identical to Mercury. So that involves both. Uh, take the property of being made of rock, well that doesn't involve either, that's a paradigmatically just a qualitative property, right? But now we can see that the property of being, say, well I already gave you the example, the property of being an uncle, involves the identity relation but doesn't involve any particular object. Whereas the property of being on Mercury does involve the particular object Mercury but doesn't involve the identity relation. Okay, so these things come apart. And then you must might immediately notice that the traditional definition of a hexity is going to involve both kinds of identity involving. Because a hexity is a property Px defined by the formula for all x, px, if and only if x, sorry, property pa, defined by the formula pa, if and only if, for all x, pax, sorry, pa is defined by the formula for all x, pax, if and only if x equals a. Uh, that's, that's what a hexity is. Well, at least that's, I mean, it might, you might want necessarily for all x, right? But you're certainly going to have to have x, uh, uh, the identity relation in there and a in there to cash out the sort of logical form of a hexity. So it's, it's identity involving in both, both respects. Okay, so... Um, uh, I won't really say anything that I haven't already said. So then just here's sort of symbols. Um, it's all sort of as you'd expect, right, that 
we said absolutely discernible, relatively discernible, weakly discernible, and then we can index these depending on which language we're talking about. So if you've got a little equal sign, it means absolutely discernible in the language with identity. And if you've got a little M, it means absolutely discernible in the language with constants. Okay, now just point out that everything is absolutely discernible in the language with identity and constants, and that's just what we started with, the claim that PII is triv trivial if you have... Now, I mean, I said it's trivial if you have full second-order comprehension, but... The bit that you need is the bit that allows you to have um, hexities. And you'll get hexities if you've got, I mean, that is property, you know, you'll get hexities if you've got both constants and the identity symbol. So, so we know that um, absolute discernibility is, I mean, in fact, everything reduces to intrinsic discernibility if you have uh, both constants and identity, right? Um, Good, okay. So, but what about, what are the logical relations among all these different notions? Do all discernibility relations collapse to distinctness in the language with identity or the language with names? Right, so here's a, the thought was, they collapse to distinctness in the language with both identity and names, right? But it, when we remember what we said, we have to restrict ourselves to identity, not including identity involving properties for it to be non-trivial. But this is now that this is raising the question: Is it trivial if we have one or the other, but not both? And the answer is going to be no. Uh, they only all collapse the distinctness in the language with both identity and names. And what are the relations between these different discernibility relations? Well, here they are. Um, delightfully, my symbols have not been messed up by the PC here, so if there's a mistake, it's genuinely a mistake. Um, so absolute, we already said, is, is stronger, um, sorry, is, is, is less discerning than relative, which is less discerning than weak. Okay, so that's this hierarchy. Um, in a particular, in a language with identity, the same thing holds. But the surprising bit, and, and, um, Right. The surprising bit is that weak discernibility turns out to be equivalent to any kind of discernibility in a language with names. And I'm going to come back to what I think is the philosophical significance of that and maybe diagnose why people have been very suspicious about weak discernibility as a response to the... as, a, as part of a theory of individuation. Uh, and weak discernibility... Um, in a language with identity, well, that's not the same thing as distinctness, as mere distinctness. Okay, so um, I'm going to just, I'm just going to sum, I, I, there's, I, I started late. I mean, if I go on to about ten past six, is that okay? Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to bother going through the, the, the proofs. I'm going to summarise the, the results and then, because there's some more stuff I want to say at the end, and then we can come back to these if you're interested. So um, the claim here is that weak discernibility in a language without names holds, if and only if, it holds in a language with names. So the upshot of that is going to be something like 
Weak discernibility is already giving you as much as you get by adding in names. Okay, so um, there's the proof. Um, let's, I will skip over it. So that's the proof of the second claim. So here's the upshot. Okay, so suppose L is a language without constants or identity. We've seen in general that the relations of intrinsic, absolute, relative and weak discernibility are not equivalent for such a language. Suppose that we have a model then we might expect that in the language where we're allowed a constant for every object, all the discernibility relations will collapse into numerical distinctness, but that is not so. Um, now consider, so consider, for example, the, um, the edgeless graph with two vertices. So I, I, I haven't warmed you up to gr using graph theory at all, but the idea is that edgeless graph with two vertices is just a structure that consists of two nodes, there's no relations, there's no properties, there's nothing. There's nothing that could possibly discern those things. They're just brutally distinct. And then the po point is that adding names for those two things without any other resources does not give you more um, than you already had. Sorry, adding names does not allow you to discern them. Right. They were brutally distinct and they're still brutally distinct without names. Uh, with names, sorry. They're not even weakly discernible, even if we add, add, add constants. If that seems surprising, it might be for the following reason. Given an object, the hexity is a formula that holds of A but not of any other object. If each object is equipped with a hexity, then every object is intrinsically discernible from every other. So in the presence of hexities, clearly all discernibility relations collapse into numerical distinctness. So it's often thought that if we have names, if we have you know, them being identity involving, then we thereby introduce a hexity. But if we're just seeing that this is not true, all discernibility relations uh, would, would then collapse into numerical distinctiveness, but they don't. In order to introduce hexities, we'd also require the identity relation, not just the constants. Without the identity relation, there needn't be any collapse. So this shows us the importance of distinguishing between discernibility by means of object-involving formulae and discernibility by means of identity-involving formulae. In general, numerical distinctness is more discerning than weak discernibility in a language with names. But it might seem that even if the new expressive resources provided by adding constants for every object are not sufficient to discern all pairs of distinct objects, they should nonetheless be sufficient to discern more pairs of objects than are discerned by weak discernibility. But this is not true. Exactly the same pairs of objects are discerned by weak discernibility in L and by absolute, relative and weak discernibility in a language with names. So uh, they're all equivalent. A and B are weakly discernible. They're absolutely discernible in language of names, relatively discernible in language of names, weakly discernible in language of names. Now, I think that's surprising. So this is saying that weak discernibility in a purely qualitative language is capable of discerning, and this is perhaps what people originally found uh, you know, amazing but also suspicious about weak discernibility, that it uh, allows uh, surprisingly many pairs of objects to be discerned because it's actually equivalent to discernibility in the much richer language that results from adding a constant for every object of the domain. 
So weak discernibility in a purely qualitative language is equivalent to weak discernibility in a language that helps itself to singular reference to each of the objects. So I, I think that's surprising, right? That if you have weak discernibility, then adding in helping yourself to singular reference doesn't give you any more than you already had. So you might think this gives us an extra kind of argument against weak discernibility, that we can say, well look, it's not legitimate to discern A and B by means of a formula that refers to A or to B. Right? That's the Max Black point, right? Unless we're kind of begging the question, we shouldn't help ourselves to, to names. But by the result that we just shown, or just alluded, just stated, um, if it was possible to discern with a formula involving names, then it's also possible to weakly discern without such reference. So weak discernibility is not legitimate. It, it can be seen that it's implicitly doing, doing, it's implicitly doing no more than you would get if you helped yourself to singular reference, and that makes it, it makes it legitimate. Now I'm, I'm not sure if that argument is. Uh, compelling, but it is a, a novel argument against weak discernibility and better than the arguments that are usually given, and I'll say why, well the argument is usually given, and I'll say why I think that is in a minute. And then another question you can ask is, given that Simon went back and found this quine distinction between different kinds of discernibility, a notion that's weaker than the absolute discernibility that, dis, um, that, that sorry, a notion of discernibility that's, that's weaker, therefore that um, that can hold for things that aren't absolutely discernible, then um, you might think, well, is there an even weaker discernibility relation that's still stronger than numerical distinctness? Is there something else that we're missing from our hierarchy between weak discernibility and numerical distinctness? And then we, we prove that, no, there isn't. And um, I won't run through the proof of that, but the thought would be, well, yeah, maybe we should expand to consider... Uh, more formulas with more places in them, discerning with formulas with more places, and it turns out it doesn't help. So, um, weak discernibility really is the most discerning, non-trivial discernibility relation. Um, and so you might think maybe the weak discernibility really is a kind of... Um, kind of natural kind, and that's why it's been, it's been the focus of so much attention. But in any case, um, it follows that if, a and, if two objects are not even weakly discernible, then they're not, um, they're not discernible at all. They could only be brutally distinct. Now, um, now back to the metaphysics a bit. Okay, so many philosophers have, have, have objected to the idea of using relations to individuate. Uh, and this is Russell saying, you know, for things to enter into relations, there have to already be things in the first place. There's a kind of line of objection. Without distinct individuals that are metaphysically prior to the relations, there's nothing to stand in the relations that are supposed to confer individuality. It's a common objection to structuralism um, related to the insistence that there be sort of predicativity, um, but I won't go on about that as I'm running out of time. So we see all these um, philosophers objecting to weak discernibility and Catherine Hawley um, in a paper in mind 
I quote her here saying, weak discernibility is already grounded in the fact that the objects in question are distinct, so weak discernibility cannot itself be the ground of distinctness. Right, so the idea is it's illegitimate to appeal to weak discernibility because weak discernibility is already helping itself to distinct individuals. And why is it helping itself to distinct individuals? Well, because you have this relation that's satisfied in one order, own, um, satisfied by both but not by uh, one with itself. Okay, so why is this wrong? Well, I think this is wrong uh, because you can have... The, because the distinction between relationally individuated and non-relationally individuated is not the same as the distinction between merely weakly discernible and absolutely discernible or, or more discernible. You can have absolute discernibility even if all you have on the domain is relations, no intrinsic properties whatsoever. And if the objection is that we can't discern with relations, then that ought to be an objection just as much to absolute discernibility as it is to weak discernibility. Okay, so um, I have this example. You haven't got a board in here, no? Oh, there is one behind there. Okay, I'll just put it up for those who haven't seen it. I mean, I'm sick of it, but... Have you got a, 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 a pen? If there is any, it might be done. <coughs> Does anyone have one? That's okay. No? Okay. Um, well, what I would have done <laughs> uh, would have been to draw an asymmetric graph. Sorry? Were they, were they, are they indelible? Or? Oh, okay. Well, it'd be better than, better than nothing. Thank you very much. Um, so if you have an asymmetric graph of... There's an interesting fact that there aren't any asymmetric graphs apart from the single node graph of order less than six. Right, so this graph is asymmetric. What that means is that there's no non-trivial isomorphism of the graph. And that allows us to construct a description of every node in the form of a formula free in one variable, such that each node satisfies, um, that no, no two nodes satisfy the same formula. So uh, I can say of this node that it's related to a node that itself is related to three nodes, and to another node that's related to four nodes, and to a node that's related to one node. And no node has that property. Now notice I didn't have to use the identity relation there, and I didn't have to use singular reference to any of the nodes. I just made use of the resource I do have, which is relatedness, the, the, the predicate that it says whether or not the two are related. Okay, this is a, a symmetric um, edge here. We've not got a directed edge here. Okay. So there will be what Carnap called a structure description that's unique to every node. But that description won't refer to anything other than relations, because there aren't any intrinsic properties of these nodes. I mean, all, they do, all the only feature they have is they exist and they stand in relation or not to other nodes, and that's it. So, clearly, uh, in this example, the facts about the relations between the nodes 
determine the facts about the identity and diversity of the individual nodes uh, and we have relational individuation without, while still having absolute discernibility. So my, so my point here is that Hawley and others are wrong. I'll just stay, keep hold of this for the rest of the... <laughs> Hawley and others are... Oh, it has gone there. I was expecting to feel the, um, <laughs> the tension go. I mean, not, not the tension in the room, just the tension in the... Um, so, the... Um, so, so, so they're wrong to think that the way to object to weak discernibility is to point out that you're helping yourself to relations and that relations can only be satisfied if there are already things to be in the relations because that's just as much true for absolute discernibility and so they should really have objected to that too. Now, I mean, maybe, maybe they can just come back and say, oh, well, all right, our objection to weak discernibility still stands on those grounds. It's just that we should have... Um, made the objection um, even to absolute discernibility via relations. But then, then I think they're into trouble with more, with less esoteric examples of, of things that aren't intrinsically discernible, right? Um, if you're going to object to absolute discernibility where that involves relations, like classical particles, which aren't absolutely discernible, unless you are allowed to use relations, it seems. Okay. So um, I'll finish in a minute. So just a couple of other things. That just, uh, I mean, we, we've preliminary thoughts about whether structuralism amounts to holism. Catherine Hawley has suggested that um, you can defeat counterexamples to PII by thinking about the whole structure uh, and, then, and then denying that you actually have distinct individuals ultimately. Um, I think that it's definitely not the case that structuralism amounts to is the same thing as holism. Right? So I think of holism as... Uh, committed to the view that there is a fundamental level, it just makes the fundamental level up there, not down there, as it were. Right? But structuralism needn't have any such commitment. It's also true that there's nothing about the kind of structuralist individuation I've talked about that, that insists that the individuation has to be relative to the whole structure. I mean, it could just be to some sub-part of the structure. The claim is just that it's individuals are individuated in, uh, in virtue of their relations to other individuals. It needn't be the claim that they're individuated in virtue of their relations to all other individuals. And I certainly think you can be a structuralist without committing yourself to there being a fundamental level at the top or the bottom. Um, I think that if you... that it is right to think of weak discernibility as, as entailing a kind of structuralist ontology... Um, the jury's still out on whether bosons will count as weakly discernible as now, you know, they started off, the received view was that no quantum particles are discernible. Then Simon Saunders said, no, fermions are, are weakly discernible. And then, um, more recently, Fred Muller and Michael Sieving have said, no, even bosons are weak, weakly discernible. And that, on our way of looking at it, the question of whether they're right hangs on the question of whether the languages that they're using are sound in our sense. Um, I don't believe there's any reason to deny that relations can individuate if properties can. Uh, we could talk about that. Um, and I think you can have primitive individuation without hexatism. And I think you could have a non-intrinsic idea of primitive individuation. Uh, but I think... Oh yeah, but this is the... The thing I really wanted to just leave you with is the thought that 
Dependence can be modelled by derivability or definability in a restricted language. And uh, there's a connection between discernibility and the language at the more fundamental level and supervenience. Right? So uh, one way to make a supervenience thesis seem completely transparent and non-mysterious um, is to say, well, if, you know, when we get a higher level of being, we get kind of new, new entities. And these new entities can stand in the identity relation or diverse, the non-identity relation. Okay? So uh, maybe I've got a mind that's an emergent entity and the mind that I have is non-identical to the mind that Joe has. Okay? And then the claim will be that for any things that are non-identical at that level, if you're a physicalist, you might say, well, then those things must be discernible in the language of the more fundamental level, say in the language of physics. There must be some different, for Joe and I to have different minds, is just for Joe and I to be discernible in the language of f fundamental physics. Uh, as, as I hope we are. Uh, okay, so I hope I've given you enough to kind of get you thinking, and um, thanks very much for your attention. Sorry I was late. Thank you.